You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, a couple of weeks ago, our family uh, was able to spend a few days in Destin, Florida, enjoying the beach uh, and each other. It was great. And we love Florida. And over the last 15 or 16 years, we've had the opportunity to be there a lot with all of our six kids. And I especially love it now that our six kids are all young adults. Because when I think back over the last 15 years of going to Florida and enjoying it uh, with them at the amusement parks and the, and the beaches, um, lots of great times together. But I also especially think of all the untold hours of my life that were spent putting suntan lotion on my children. <laughs> uh, after, with six kids, it felt like if, like if you were to take a recap of, of my whole life and watch it, there would probably be a significant portion of it that would be entailed with that. But now... On this recent trip, I was able to go to the beach by 6 a.m. Uh, every morning and not think a thing about what the adult children were doing or what they're doing. Hashtag no more little kids for me and until I have grandkids. And hashtag uh, it's nice to be in my 50s. And when we did all go to the beach together, they could put their own sunscreen on. They could carry their own chair. It was very nice. Now, I love being at the ocean. It is so mysterious, it's so powerful, it's beautiful and also scary at the same time. You think you don't have to be very far out there and you would be in trouble. And it creates in me at the same time a sense of, of awe and peace, but also my sense of my smallness. And one of the days when I was sitting there in my chair, enjoying no responsibilities, my adult sons decided to do what you often do at the beach, to build a sand wall as the tide is coming in. And, and you know, joyfully building it, it seems like you'd be making progress for a little while, and then a huge wave would come in and just wipe it all out. And because I'm no longer a young dad with young kids, instead of helping them, 
I just sat in my chair and made commentary instead, uh, joking dad commentary that I thought was funny, which they probably didn't. But, and I said, you can do it. You can build a wall that the ocean will not take down. Every other sandcastle has been destroyed, but you're the exception. You can do it, right? And we all laughed, uh, or at least I did, at their futile efforts. The fact is, you actually don't have to go to the ocean very many times before you realize that the ocean always wins. It does not matter how elaborate or tall or beautiful of a sandcastle or sand wall you build, everything eventually gets washed away. And it's actually true for houses and anything else you build on the beach. I hate to ruin Florida for you, but do you know what they do? They actually import in from the Bahamas and inland millions of cubic yards of sand every year to keep the beaches because they're eroding away all the time because the ocean always wins. And the truth is that that truth is part of a more fundamental and universal reality that time always wins. Given enough time, everything that we humans do and build and create and dream about and engage in will eventually deteriorate, die, be lost, and decay. Time always wins. The healthiest crossfitter will have joints that don't work and an injury and cancers. The wealthiest family, given enough time, will eventually lose that status and power. There's always the last person of a great American dynasty. The prettiest people would become old and saggy and their beautiful bodies will stop functioning. The most famous and powerful people in the world, if they're lucky, might end up with a Wikipedia entry that some people read, but that's about it. As they say in the casino world, if you play long enough, the house always wins. The kids had the TV on at one point when we were in Florida, and there was an episode of Deal or No Deal, and it about drove me crazy because obviously the house is always going to win. You have to stop right at some point, but the people, like all of us humans, live in oblivion that time always wins. We are time-bound creatures, and time will always win over us. And that, friends is the ultimate sense of hevel, the Hebrew word for vapor or smoke or the uncontrollable mystery of our lives. And that's the topic that we have been talking about for the last 12 weeks as we've been going through Ecclesiastes. Maybe this is your first Sunday, maybe you've been here a long time, but we've been going through for 12 weeks this powerful book called Ecclesiastes. And here we are now at the end seeking to ask one more time, what is God's wisdom for us? And we're gonna look at 11.7 through the end in 12.14. And here at the end of this really shocking book, the teacher, the great teacher spreads his arms wide and he says, in a comprehensive way, whether you are eight or 80, young and old, I'm gonna invite you to think about life one more time and pay attention to the fact that time always wins. So first, we're going to look at verses 7 to 10. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to look at it there with me. We'll put some of the words on the screen as well, but you can pull up on your phone or a Bible. First, we're going to look at what he says about rejoicing in our youth. He addresses the young. That is, anyone this morning who is paying attention and can understand that I'm talking, that's you. 
all the way up to maybe those who are cresting the hill of life. And the main point is found right there in verses seven and eight. Look at it. Light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years you may live, anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. So light is sweet. That means it's good to be alive. Life is good. Breath is beautiful. So enjoy the day that you've been given. This has been the point that Ecclesiastes has been making all throughout. And young people, he's especially addressing here, adolescents, teenagers, you in your 20s and 30s, contrary to what you might have heard or been told, the Bible and Christianity is not anti-joy, is not anti-life experiences, is not anti-pleasure. Christianity is not a religion that's trying to curb and control and rob you of real life. Just the opposite. God is inviting you into fullness of life. There is no rebuke here in Ecclesiastes or anywhere in the Bible for being young or for enjoying life. Indeed, that's what we're commanded to do to live fully and wholeheartedly, to, to take pleasure in each day is right and it honors God. Why? Because everything in the world that is good has been made by God out of his love and beauty. In fact, when we don't enjoy the beauty of all that God has made in relationships and creation and institutions and everything, it'd be like a, a petulant child that a parent is really, really loves them and they maybe saved up and bought a present that they feel like is going to be perfect for the child and they give it to the child. The child barely unwraps like a corner of the wrapping paper, looks at the awesome toy helicopter or iPad or whatever it is and just throws it over their shoulder and goes back to life. That dishonors the parents. And so too, the Bible teaches that to, and especially Ecclesiastes, to enjoy that what God has given is actually the most honoring thing to him. Look at verse nine. He says, you who are young, be happy while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. In other words, YOLO, or that old saying, is real. We do only live once under the sun. And so to hold back from living is actually to deny what it means to be alive and to be a creature of God. But... The teacher doesn't stop there. Because if all we have is YOLO, you only live once, to drive our whole philosophy of life, we'll actually end up making a wreck of our lives. If we understand verse nine that I just read to mean do whatever you want, whenever you want, don't care about anybody, don't think about any consequences, then this would be the equivalent of like eating a Snickers blizzard for every meal. It might taste good and gives a jolt of pleasure and a sugar high for a moment, but soon your heart will be sick as a dairy-filled stomach and your soul will be full of cavities that sink into the roots of your person. And this is where, friends, the teacher and the whole Bible is so wise and so nuanced and so worthy of listening to guide our lives. Because in the very same breath that we're told to live fully and to rejoice in our lives under the sun, we're reminded to do this with wisdom. Let me just read the whole verses here for you again from seven to 10. Look at it again. Light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless or vapor. 
You who are young, be happy while you're young and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment, which doesn't mean condemnation, it means evaluation. He'll, he'll evaluate all that we've done for good or bad. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are meaningless or vapor. Do you see the wisdom? Do you, do you feel the wisdom here? Live fully, rejoice in your life under the sun, but, or maybe better, and do it wisely. Live wholeheartedly, but do it wisely. There's a way, you see, to, to live youthfully and fully that will bring you life, and there's a way to live youthfully that is foolish and will bring you grief. So how, what's the difference? How do you live without being fools and still live fully. Well, it's right there in the text. Again, there are two ways. First, enjoy the light fully while remembering that the darkness will come and follow your heart while remembering that God will evaluate how we have lived. You see, friends, God's wisdom is so perfect and so beautiful because wisdom is always the middle way between two ways of foolishness. Or as we often say, virtue is the middle way between two vices. One foolish way to live is that you live fully, but you are not thinking about God at all and you just do whatever you want. The other way to foolishly live is to, to not ever fully live, to live in fear all the time. And I know that when, you know, if you're talking about living fully and then you talk about God's judgment and the darkness is gonna come, that might feel like it's the opposite of living fully and wholeheartedly, but this is where the wisdom is to be found. The truth is that all good things will come to an end. Light will turn to darkness. God is watching. And I know that can make many of you feel like you want to shrink back from life and live in fear of doing the wrong thing. But God is inviting us into wisdom. He's saying, learn over time. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to misstep, but live fully and wholeheartedly as creatures who embrace the joy of life, not burying the talents of our soul into the ground of fear, and do that conscious of God who made you and loves you. I love how the Christian scholar David Noggle sums it up and how he uses Irenaeus at the end. He says, despite the stereotypes the Christian faith is life-affirming rather than life-denying. It encourages believing people to discover what it means to be fully and truly human, to live exuberantly and fruitfully as God's creatures, which is the command from Genesis, abiding in God's creation that was and still is very good. And Irenaeus summed it up this way, the glory of God is a person fully alive. And as we get here to the end of Ecclesiastes, I just feel like this is such an appropriate thing to, to drive home again. This is what's being emphasized. To be a creature under the sun is to live fully remembering our creator. So the teacher starts with this call to the young, exhorts the young to honor the Lord by living wisely, but then he doesn't stop there. He presses on by going to not just youthfulness now, but goes to the other end of our human story. We're all young at one point, but we will all age and get older to remember our old age. Look at the first couple of verses of chapter 12. He says, 
Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon, the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. So he says, rejoice in your youth. He's not pulling back from that, but do so wisely. How? By remembering our creator and remembering that youth itself is fleeting, it's vapor, it's hevel. And if you look there, if you have a Bible or can look there at, at chapter 12, verses one to eight, what he does then, he gives what some people have called an ode to death. He basically goes through all these powerful images. If you, if you look down through them, all these powerful images that are really talking about the reversal of Eden. The inevitability, again, that all of life and human life winds down and that time always wins. He talks about, again, the sun and moon going dark, a picture of the end of creation. He talks about a once strong man is now stooping over. He talks about a young bride is now an old widow. I always think of, you know, you ever see a picture of your grandparents like on their wedding day and you've known them as older people? I've got this beloved aunt and uncle I've mentioned before, Aunt Margaret and Uncle Gene. They just celebrated their 71st wedding anniversary. And I saw a picture of them today and they're actually super healthy and, and sprightly in their mid 90s. But then to see their wedding picture, I'm like, oh my goodness, like I, I know them as these old people, but they were young, once young people, right? And this is the image here. Industries that were once thriving, see skies, the author says, that were once filled with birdsong are now silent. The grasshopper, once full of life and energy and singing his song, now drags himself along before dying. A silver necklace that once hung around a young, young woman's neck is now broken and lost. Golden bowls and beautiful glassware is shattered. And then he says, using language right from Genesis to kind of sum this up, humans who are made from dust will return to become dust. And the breath and spirit that once fills our lungs will no longer. This is powerful. Kind of discouraging images. And after all this reflection, so all the whole book, and then especially this ode to death, what does he say? He says that if you've been reading Ecclesiastes, what he says all, all throughout from the beginning, threefold now, he says in, in 12.8, meaninglessness or futility, vapor, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. And you know, that, that sense of futility is, I think, the appropriate response if we're honest. You ever have those quiet moments where maybe you're pumping gas or you are at a stoplight or maybe you first wake up in the morning and you think, does any of this really matter? You ever have those moments where you just think, am I just sort of going through the motions and none of this matters? Or you start to think about a friend with cancer or just something that is so broken you can't fix it. And it's just, you just have this sense of futility and that things always break down and time always wins and all good things come to an end. That's the appropriate response to that honest look. For me, as I was meditating on this this week, I was reminded of this one of my favorite poems, a very powerful poem, some of you may have heard by Dylan Thomas. And I don't know if he was thinking of Ecclesiastes 11, 12 when he wrote this in the 
I think in the 30s or 40s, but it speaks with a lot of the same imagery of light and old age and the rage we feel against it. He says, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, they're crying out how their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. They rage, rage against the dying of the light. And wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And thinking of his father, he says, and you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That sense, it's a powerful poem. I encourage you to memorize it because you can meditate on it then. That sense of futility and the wrongness at, at death is okay. That's not an ungodly response. This is in fact an honest response by we creatures who have been made for eternity. And here at the very end of the book, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is once again inviting us to this kind of honest evaluation of our human experience. So what do we do? How do we respond to all this sort of brutal honesty that shreds our souls? Well, this week, uh, just through various appointments and being with a lot of you, I I took the opportunity when I was with several people from our church this week to just ask them, hey, what's God been doing in your life over the last 12 weeks? What kind of things have been coming up for you? And what, what have you been learning through this, this time in Ecclesiastes? And it was so encouraging to hear all the wisdom from you and how you've been growing and how God's been speaking to you. Some of you talked about really just having an increased confidence in the Bible just to see how honest it is. It's so encouraging. Um, some people talked about how at first Ecclesiastes seemed like a really depressing book, but instead it's really spurred you on to living a better life. Several of you talked about the encouragement you've had toward just learning to be contentment, content, no, recognizing that nothing does last. And I love how one person summed it up. We learn to hold on to life loosely, but hold on, uh, but hold fast to what is to come. One of you talked to me about seeing the death of some family members and and thinking about Ecclesiastes and remembering to invest in relationships, not just money, to invest in, in things that will matter in the end. One of you confessed to me that with his personality type, which is kind of, you know, kind of tends to give up a lot of times, that, that he could read Ecclesiastes to kind of feel like, well, you know, this kind of nihilistic response, like everything Nothing really matters, so I'm just, nothing really matters. I just kind of feel defeated by it. But instead, he was very encouraged that he's, that he's seeing that while we do need to hold on to things loosely, it still matters how we live for ourselves and for others in the presence of God. 
And one person even told me that this series has finally shown him what his next tattoo is going to be. <laughs> I feel like my work is done here. All right, that's amazing. And it's an amazing tattoo idea. I'm not going to tell it to you so you don't steal it from him. I'm going to do it before he does. But I thought it was a great idea inspired by this Ecclesiastes series. So that's great. I'm thrilled that God has been so much at work. But here's the question. Not opposed to any of those things, but how does the book itself end? Like what's the, what, if we think of Ecclesiastes like a painting, what's the frame that's sort of around it that affects how we read it? Well, you can see it there in chapter 12, verses 9 to 12, it says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people, and he pondered and searched and set it out in, in many Proverbs. And the teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he, what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study wearies the body. So again, throughout this, this wonderful book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher in Jerusalem has been telling us all kinds of things. He, and now what you have here at the end is sort of a, his, his faithful disciples are like publishing the book now. And this is like the frame they put around. It's like a, like a closing summary. You can see it changes to the third person. And, and this is something that actually happened several times in the Bible. Like at the very end of, of Deuteronomy, when we learned that Moses died and no one knows where his body was and that the, the, the leadership of Israel transferred to Joshua or the, the very, very end of, of John chapter 21 when the, the disciples of John say, we are testifying that the beloved disciple wrote all this and his testimony is true. So too, here in chapter 12, verses 9 to 12, like it's like a step back and a framing of it. And what do we learn? We learn that the teacher's sayings, all that we've been listening to and hearing from God in Ecclesiastes, they're described as goads. You know what a goad is? A goad is a stick that you put a nail through with a sharp point leaning out that you use as a shepherd to guide and direct animals. Now, the Bible uses this shepherd imagery of other shepherds and leaders and God himself as being the ultimate shepherd. Usually the metaphors that are used for a shepherd are like a, a, a staff, which can kind of guide and even rescue, like with a crook on it. This is a less gentle image for a shepherd. This is this idea of, that it's going to sting, that there's a nail there that drives. But the reason that's important is because you have to drive a dumb animal like us in a certain way to protect them. And if you think about Ecclesiastes, there have been some things in here, there are some things in here that really sting. All this talk of death and destruction and loss and money and words, it's not an easy book. And here at the end, we're told, how do you understand this? These are goads. So if you have felt stung and, and stuck a little bit with, as with a nail during this series, that's good. You're hearing from God. And if that's the frame, then in the very last words, we get like the title. So if you're looking at this picture of, of Ecclesiastes, the frame kind of says, this is going to sting a little bit. But then what is the title? Like what, what is the thing that makes sense of all of it? And look at it. It's found in the last two verses of the book, 12, 13, and 14. It says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God 
and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind for God will bring every deed into judgment or evaluation, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Everything in life under the sun is hevel or vapor or fleeting or futile. And now we get that at the end. And so the question is, then what in the world do you do? And the answer is, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, what's kind of weird about this is that if you've been reading through Ecclesiastes, what we've emphasized is that Ecclesiastes is very kind of brutally honest and earthy. And, you know, we're used to hearing the Bible talk about fear God and keep his commandments, but Ecclesiastes hasn't talked that way very often. It has a different sense. And in fact, a lot of modern scholars really struggle with how these verses connect with the rest of the book because the book has a very different feel to it than that. But it's actually very clearly the perfect and natural conclusion to all that Ecclesiastes has said if, if and only if, we understand what it means to fear God and keep his commandments. What does that mean? To fear God and keep his commandments. Well, in fact, the fear of the Lord, that's a phrase you see a lot in the Bible, including in one of the other great wisdom books. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's great. I mean, it's a very common idea. But I'm afraid that you and I probably often misunderstand what it means to fear the Lord. It doesn't mean fear in the sense of like a horror film kind of fear or even anxiety in our relationship with him. Sometimes we translate it as reverence instead, but I think that's kind of sterile and impersonal. Here's what I suggest to you, what fear of the Lord means, especially in light of Ecclesiastes, but really the whole Bible, to live in the fear of the Lord and obedience to God is to live your life as a creature, remembering that God is the creator. To live your life as a creature, remembering that God is the creator. It's not living anxiously. It's not afraid that God's gonna finally get so impatient with us that he just wipes us out. It's not living just waiting for the other shoe to drop that you may, many people feel like that God's really against them or something. It's not, it's living wholeheartedly. It's living aware though that we are merely creatures, that we are time bound, we are limited, we are imperfect. We are dependent at every moment on someone else, our creator. To live in the fear of the Lord is to embrace that, to embrace this radical dependence as ones who don't have control of our lives and who can't even sustain ourselves. I love how one commentator describes obedience the same way. It's that obedience is the deepest expression of humble acceptance of what it means to be human before God. In other words, obedience should be understood and fear of the Lord should be understood as what it means to be human because we are dependent creatures to every cell of our, of our whole existence. To fear God is to recognize that our lives under the sun will have an end, but God does not. To fear God is to say to our creator, I am not God, you are. I am vapor, you are everlasting. I love how Jacques Ellul describes it. He says, you know, the key is we have to realize we are not autonomous. Our problems do not primarily stem from our failure to stay in the garden, but from taking ourselves to be the creator. Did you get that? 
That our failure is not primarily, that, or our problems are not just that we didn't stay in the garden. Our problem is that we take ourselves to be the creator. I think often you and I think, if I could just get all this stuff to work out, then I would be happy. If I could just, if I could kind of get everything to not be so broken and to work, then I, everything would be great. But our problem isn't just that we're outside of the garden, which we are. Our problem is the problem that our first parents, Adam and Eve, had in the garden, that they decided that they wanted to act like God. And now, all these generations of humans later, we are the same way. Our primary problem is not that everything isn't perfect in our lives. Our primary problem is that we are creatures who are trying to live like we're the creator. And to the degree that we do that, we will never find life. So the fear of the Lord and obeying his instructions is this, this challenge, this invitation to reorient our lives around not ourselves, but around God who made us. And that is the beginning of wisdom. And this is what Ecclesiastes has been saying to us all along with these powerful words that are like goads, stinging us, poking us to wake up, to stop wandering off the path of life into foolishness and hedonism and cynicism and slothfulness and joylessness. And so the summary of the book of Ecclesiastes is not coming out of nowhere. This is exactly the how, that how Ecclesiastes functions. It shows us that the only way to find life, the beginning of wisdom, is fearing the Lord, recognizing we are creatures, and recognizing he is the creator. And I'd sum it up this way, and maybe you want to write this down. We creatures will only find life when we live remembering our creator. We'll only find life as creatures. That's our nature when we live remembering that we have a creator. The invitation to fear God and keep his commandments is an invitation to wisdom, an invitation to find life under the sun that now is fully manifested through Jesus Christ, the son of God who's become incarnate and teaches us. And God is inviting you this morning through Ecclesiastes, through the whole Bible, ultimately through Jesus Christ, to learn this wisdom you have not made yourself. I'm sure you've probably heard the saying, Pastor Kevin even mentioned it last week, of carpe diem, which is a Latin phrase from the poet Horace, which is often translated into English as seize the day. And you can see that on bumper stickers and t-shirts or wherever. Probably most famously comes in modern American culture through the old movie, The Dead Poets Society. And there is a truth to this idea of seizing the day if we take it to mean live fully and wholeheartedly. I think Ecclesiastes is saying that. But it actually turns out that translating carpe diem as seize the day probably isn't the best translation. Sorry if you own a bumper sticker company, but that's probably not the best translation as you Latin lovers should know. I'm looking at you, HLS students especially. Carpe doesn't, shouldn't really be translated with the violent English sense of seas, but is actually a much gentler gardening image that means something more like pluck or pick in the way that you would carpe or pluck or pick a Michigan blueberry bush or, a, or your backyard cherry tomato plant or a delicate flower and carefully pluck the fruit from the stem so that you might savor it without crushing it. 
That's actually what Horace is recommending to pluck each day and cherish it. I like how one modern author describes it. He talks, he's talking about Horace and he says that, um, that Horace was advising us to pluck the cranberry or blueberry of the day tenderly free without damaging it. Pick the day, harvest the day, reap the day, mow the day, forge the day. Don't freaking grab the day in your fist like a burger at a fairground and take a big chomping bite out of it. That's not what carpe means. If you, if you live, you see, a wrong reading of Ecclesiastes would be, hey, you only live once, do whatever you want, and you're all going to die. That's seize the day. But the real wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God, is to live wholeheartedly, but to wisely pluck the fruit of this day that God has given you. This is the message of Ecclesiastes, learning to live as a creature in proper relationship to your creator, receiving every day, every moment as a perfect gift. So what does this mean for you and me this afternoon, on Tuesday, next month? Well, let me close by just pressing this in with a little bit of a goad. Teenagers, you here today who are teenagers, run with the wind. <laughs> Live fully, enjoy the vigor and strength of your, and the wonder of being young that you will not have after this time, but do so wisely, remembering that you did not make yourself and you cannot sustain yourself. Some of you teenagers will die within the next decade. How would you want your life to be evaluated if you do? Pluck this day. Enjoy it. Don't crush it or destroy it. You are building a house, teenagers, that you will live in for the rest of your life whether it's a shallow, screen-addicted house or one with solid foundation with beautiful walls of friendship and wisdom. You who are in your 20s and 30s, difficult time, but lots of joys, but also lots of uncertainties. That's okay. Don't forget to rejoice and enjoy life. Work hard, but don't lose joy. You are the, to go back to Thomas's poem, you are the wild men who caught and sing the sun in its flight. Don't be like them who learn too late and live these decades in anxiety. This is the time to be present to what you are living and experiencing with all its anxieties to pluck this day and this, these decades as a gift. Middle-aged people, Still a lot of joy to be had. We're kind of cresting the hill of life. I'm in this stage. As I said, it's awesome, and it's also overwhelmingly busy. My schedule is out of control. And I was speaking to one of you this week who has a very wise plaque, a very busy person in our life, in our church, who's very successful. He has a very wise plaque on his desk. Be here now. His wife said to me afterwards, he needs to have that plaque at home too. I get it. And he agreed. I like that. Here's the version of that that I try to live with every day throughout my busy days. Be present to this place, to this moment, to this person. 
If you're in that stage of life like me with so much going on, the call of Ecclesiastes, be present to this. Pluck this day as a gift. Be present to these people this day in this moment. And you who are older and even elderly, you know darkness is coming. You feel it in your bodies and you see it. May I exhort you to not spend your days pining over the past or afraid of the future. This is precisely the time to embrace your creatureliness. You're aware of it. So lean into and embrace the fact that you are a creature and turn your heart fully to your creator. You of all people here know more about life than any of the rest of us. So model for us and give yourself up to maybe some habits that you've lost or maybe never had. And that is reading your Bible, praying to the Lord and turning outward and serving those younger than you. Don't seize the day at this last phase of your life seeking only your own pleasure in an earthly sense. Instead, pluck this day as a gift and serve others as well. So as we come here to the end of our series, I'm just filled with gratitude to God for his work. I did not know what to think about preaching 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes, but it's been a joy. God has been at work. Let me pray as we close our time together. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.